Well, it's always a blessing to be with you here at Mount Pleasant. This isn't the first time I've had the privilege of participating in a global impact celebration. And it's just always an encouragement. And these flags were a reminder of just the extensiveness of your heart for missions and involvement uh, around the world. Uh, We appreciate uh, recently, uh, two, three years ago, you're hosting our our missionary appointment service. But I want to remind you that uh, a global impact celebration is not just a time to hear testimonies from missionaries and others about what God is doing around the world or to be informed about what uh, your offerings go to support uh, in sharing the gospel uh, and across North America and around the world. It's a time for God to speak into your life regarding your place in God's mission. So many times after an emphasis such as this or an appointment service, someone will come up to me and say, Dr. Rankin, I would be willing to go as a missionary uh, and participate on a mission trip, but God has not called me. Now, I've never figured out how to respond to that tactfully. You know, what I want to say is, do you have the same Bible I have? To whom do you think the Great Commission was given? Just a handful of disciples on a hillside in Galilee or just an elite few who have a burning bush or Damascus Road experience? And apart from that, we're exempt and we would be willing to go, but God's chosen not to call me. I don't think so. That's not the nature of our God who yearns for all the nations and peoples of the world to know him. The Great Commission was given to every believer and to every church. In fact, I often say it's not the responsibility of the International Mission Board to do missions on behalf of Southern Baptists. The Great Commission was given to every church and every believer. And what we seek to do is simply enable and facilitate and empower and serve you as God's people to be obedient to our Great Commission tax. A few years ago, I was traveling in Central Asia, uh, an area of the world where I'm still intrigued that we even have missionaries now witnessing in in those uh, Islamic countries of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and Azerbaijan and so forth. They were so long like a veil of the Soviet Union just obscured them even from our awareness. And as I was traveling throughout those countries and seeing where churches were being planted and beginning to multiply a Christian witness for the first time, my heart was just thrilled with with pride and praise to God for for what he was doing now. And uh, I asked our, our regional leader, how many of the people groups in Central Asia have now been engaged with the gospel and has been planted in a church in their language and culture? And they knew instantly. They said, so far... We've reached 23 of the people groups here in Central Asia. But then I asked the wrong question. Knowing they were doing demographic research to stay on the cutting edge of our mission task, I asked, well, how many people groups here in Central Asia have yet to be engaged with the Christian witness? The regional leader didn't immediately respond. In fact, he lowered his head and I thought he was thinking, calculating a response to my question. But when he looked up, tears had filled his eyes. His voice was choked with emotion. 
He said, Jerry, we can identify over 300 people groups as best we can determine have not yet even heard the name of Jesus here in Central Asia. Now, that's hard for us to comprehend in this age of technology and communication when we can see global events as they occur simultaneously around the world, that there would be people isolated culturally and geographically in places where there are no churches, there are no Christian witnesses to to share the gospel, no scripture in their language, no missionary has yet engaged them with the gospel. But I'll never forget his next statement. He said, you know the most difficult thing about being a regional leader responsible for our Southern Baptist mission work here in Central Asia is every year in our annual planning, looking at the limited personnel and resources at our disposal and having to determine which of these people groups will be deprived of hearing the gospel yet another year. And how many multitudes will die without ever knowing that a Savior has come and died for them? And I came back from that trip with a question burning in my heart. By what criteria should any people be deprived of at least hearing the gospel? When God has blessed us so richly in numbers and resources and the potential in our lives and churches of reaching the whole world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to focus your attention this morning on, on one little verse of scripture in 1 John three seventeen. Uh, it's a verse that I, I wish God's spirit had never inspired to be included in his holy word. Because every time I read it, it, it pierces my heart with conviction. First John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, I'm going to get back to that in just a moment. But you know, if there's any verse of Scripture I think a Southern Baptist knows... Next to John 3.16, of course, it would be the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, where Jesus tells us to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Now, there's no misunderstanding our mission task. We know our Lord has given us the mandate of witnessing to the lost where we live in our Jerusalem and Judea but also among the nations and peoples of the world to make disciples, to bring them into the kingdom of God. We know and understand the consequences of lostness and the urgency to get the gospel, to give every person an opportunity to at least hear and understand and respond in their own cultural context to the gospel. And so it's not a matter of understanding our mission task. Uh, you don't need to have a mission conference, a global impact celebration every year to remind us what our mission is. As a born-again believer, we understand the consequences of lostness and the need for missions to take the gospel to all peoples. The problem is with one of motivation, of personal motivation to be involved 
in that mission task. And I think Jesus understood this in his preparing his disciples for that day when he would ascend to the Father and relegate his mission to his disciples and those of us that continue to follow him. For you see, the Great Commission wasn't just an afterthought. It wasn't as if Jesus had come and ministered on earth and died for our sins and rose again and now ready to return to heaven. Thought, oh, by the way, it just occurred to me. Why don't you go and make disciples of other nations? No, it was born in the heart of God from the foundation of the world. It was why God called Abraham to leave his home and family so that through his seed, all the families of nations would be blessed. And that mission, that vision of a global kingdom, of the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of our Lord, was the compelling message of Jesus from his very earliest days of ministry as he proclaimed the kingdom of God. But he realized that we would have a problem being motivated to proclaim that kingdom and fulfill his mission, even among his disciples. For you see, the first command he gave them was not the command to to go and make disciples, the command to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. The first command Jesus gave to his disciples was the command to look. The command to look. You remember early in his ministry, uh, when he was talking with the woman at the well at Samaria, it was early in his ministry in the fourth chapter of John. The disciples had been to the city to buy food, and as they returned, he said to them in verse 35, Say not there yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, For they are white already unto harvest. He commanded them to open their eyes, to look, to see the fields that were white unto harvest. The lostness of people around them. For you see, until we are willing to see the world as God sees it, we're not going to do much to try to reach that world and bring in the harvest and bring them into the kingdom. When I was on that trip to Central Asia... I remember talking with one of our personnel who who teaches at a technical school in a little city of Nakus up in northwest Uzbekistan among the Karl Kapak people. And in that conversation, I remember him telling me about the school has a school song, the words of which go something to the effect of the name of the school is the center of Nakus. Nakus is the center of Karl Kapak land. Karl Kapak land is the center of Uzbekistan. And Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Well, now that's a pretty auspicious worldview. And it's probably never occurred to you that Uzbekistan is the center of the world. Why? Because that's not our world. That's not where we live. Our world centers around ourselves, our family, our community, our interests. But we'll never be motivated to reach a lost world till we're able to see beyond the egocentrical provincialism of our own world. Listen, when the scripture says God so loved the world, 
Folks, that's not just our world of shopping malls and and expressways and beautiful homes. It's a world of refugees dying of genocide in Darfur and Sudan. It's a world of people in hopelessness and despair in war-torn countries like Afghanistan and Iraq. It's a world of more than one billion people who live in unreached people groups in spiritual darkness without hope and assurance for eternity. That's the world God loves and died to save. And that's why he commanded us to lift up our eyes, to open our eyes and see a world as God sees it. But not only did Jesus say, see a world, a lost world that needed to be one in harvest. He said, told his disciples, see a fields that are white unto harvest. He wanted them to recognize a world in which God was at work to fulfill his mission and to reach the nations. I used to say that the last decade of the 20th century saw the greatest advance in global evangelization than in all 200 years of modern missions since William Carey went to India. With the breakup of the Soviet Union, thousands of missionaries and volunteers swept into Russia and Eastern Europe. We discovered creative access strategies to get people into places that were restricted to traditional missionaries, begin to see a harvest that is unprecedented since New Testament days in in China. Uh, It was amazing, the advance. And folks, that wasn't because of our IMB strategy or Western diplomacy. It was the power and providence of God moving in global events to fulfill his mission. But as I stand here one decade into the 21st century, there has been more to happen in fulfilling God's mission and global advance since we entered the 21st century than my entire lifetime. I remember 1999, the International Mission Board uh, missionaries reported a record 4,000 new churches started on mission fields around the world. Last year, they reported 24,000 churches started. In the year 2000, we had just reached 300,000 new believers baptized for the first time. Last, for each of the last two years, almost 600,000 new believers have been baptized. But more significant than that, each year for the last 10 years, more than 100 Unreached people groups have been engaged with the gospel for the first time. Hearing the gospel, God is using global events, warfare, chaos, political disruption, economic uncertainty, natural disasters to turn the hearts of people to a search for something that will give them hope and security that can be found only in Jesus Christ. Look beyond the headlines. See a world in which God is at work. An opportunity that should motivate us to do whatever it takes to reach a lost world. But not only did Jesus command them to look, he still didn't command them to go and be witnesses and make disciples. The next command that you read in the scripture, in the gospels, Jesus giving his disciples was the command to love. 
A short time later, well, later in his ministry, he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And you read in the uh, 13th chapter of John, in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. A short time later, a young Pharisee asked him the question, which is the greatest commandment? What an opportunity to say, go and make disciples of all nations. Man, he missed it. What did he say? He quoted Deuteronomy 6, 5 to say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul. And then he hastened to say, but the second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And just so there was no misunderstanding what he meant, he told the story of the Good Samaritan to illustrate that that neighbor we're to love are not people that live in our community that we enjoy fellowshipping with and in our church, uh, but they're people of other races and cultures and even antagonistic relationships. That's the neighbor we're to love. Cross-culturally in Africa and Latin America and Asia and around the world. Why? Because you see, love is other-centered. You love your family, your children. You give yourselves to them. You're devoted to meeting their needs. It's not about me. It's not about myself, what I want and my plans. That's the nature of love. Well, what about a lost world? Do we love a lost world? Because if we love them, you see, love makes possible the phenomenon of sacrifice. We're willing to give of our lives that their needs might be met, their need of a Savior, their need to hear of salvation. We're willing to give more generously and sacrificially to that faith commitment offering and global missions that others may go. You know, we're dealing with an unprecedented tragedy in our mission history. We reached a peak last year, early last year, of 5,660 missionaries serving overseas. Because of the downturn in giving and limited financial resources, through the cooperative program and Lottie Moon Christmas offering, we're in process of bringing that down to 5,000 missionaries. And we'll still be beyond our budget resources. What a tragedy when God has blessed Southern Baptists so richly in numbers and resources. What is it that will motivate us to give sacrificially only love? Love for the nations, for the peoples, as he commanded us to do. Okay, it's not natural for us to love people who are different. We don't even know. People who don't like freedom-loving democracies and uh, Americans. No, that's not natural for us to love the peoples of the world. But it's God's nature. And is that not why God... Why he commanded us to love God with all our heart and mind and soul. For you see, when we truly love God, and our worship as we were singing earlier, bless his holy name. 
is out of an overflow of authentic expression of our love for him, then our lives become a channel of his love for the nations and a lost world. But only if we're motivated by love that is selfless. I used to think beating people over the head with the Great Commission would result in more people surrendering to missions, churching, giving more, sacrificially praying for missions. But it really doesn't. Recently, in, uh, two weeks ago, at our, our March appointment service in, in Memphis, Tennessee, 61 new missionaries were commissioned. And after they had given their testimonies, the pastor that was leading, I mean, the crowd just erupted in a spontaneous ovation, that just standing ovation, just went on and on. And afterwards, uh, the pastor that was to lead the prayer of dedication addressed the missionaries, and he said, you know why everyone was clapping so enthusiastically? Because it's you going and not them. We know what our Lord's told us to do, but that doesn't motivate us to put our plans on the shelf and follow and dedicate our lives to, to offer our, our own lives to go to the mission field. And I understood uh, why uh, some time ago, reading a book on evangelism by Dr. J. E. Conant, he made the statement, the Great Commission is sufficient authority to send us after the lost, but it's not sufficient motivation. Now, that gave me pause, for I thought, every Christian ought to be conscientious about what our Lord told us to do. I mean, if that doesn't motivate us, what will? But he goes on to explain, it's not the authority of an external command, even from our Lord but the impulse of an indwelling presence that sends us after the lost. You see, it's only when you come into a relationship with Christ, when you recognize you're a sinner saved by grace, you're an undeserving recipient of his mercy that gives you the assurance of going to heaven in eternal life. There's something that compels us to want to share it with others. And it's that love for others, for our neighbors, where we live and around the world that need to know Jesus. Not out of a sense of obligation, because we're commanded to, somebody's got to do it. No, that's not going to motivate us. But it's only when we look and see a lost world that need Jesus. And we love that world as he's commanded us. To do. But even then, Jesus didn't command us to go. He didn't command anyone to go. Now, I have to kind of swallow hard to acknowledge this since I'm out there appealing to people to go to the mission field. But if you're familiar with the grammar of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, you know that there is only one active transitive imperative verb in that passage. And it's the verb translated, make disciples. That's what he commanded us to do. The rest of the verb forms are participles. How do you make disciples? By baptizing, teaching them. Well, how do you make disciples of the nations? Well, obviously, You've got to get to them. You've got to go. You've got to take the gospel to them. But it's not because we're commanded to. It's an expectation. 
What Jesus literally said is, as you are going, make disciples of all nations. For you see, when we see the nations and the people that don't have Christ, they don't even have an opportunity to know of him. And when we love them with the love God places in our heart, then we will be finding the means to take the gospel to them. We will be submitting our lives to whatever God wants us to do to be a part of it. Not because we're commanded, but because it's expected. And so what Jesus said is, as you're going, because you will find a way through, to go through your prayers, through your giving and through mission trips and offering your lives, make disciples of a lost world. Now come back to that little verse in 1 John 3, uh, 17, in closing. Whoever has this world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God Abide in him. Now it closes with a question, but actually it confronts us with four questions. The first, what do you have? Do you have this world's goods? Now you may say, well, not as much as I had a year ago when the economy took a nosedive, and or uh, you know, you may not consider yourself affluent or wealthy, but but let's be honest. God has blessed and prospered us as Americans. We indeed have the material things of this life. There's probably no one here that has to be concerned about a roof over your head or food to eat and clothes to wear like most of the people of our world. Why? Because God has blessed and prospered us with this world's goods. But you know the, the greatest good you can have in this world are not the material things of life, but it's to know Jesus, your salvation. What greater good is there than to know your sins are forgiven and you've been assured of eternal life? Has God given that to us? Has he provided an opportunity for us to have the greatest good you could experience in life in this world in knowing Jesus? Well, the second question then is, what do you see? Do you see your brother in need? Now, I, I always instantly think of the homeless in the inner city and those less fortunate and impoverished and going through real austere financial setbacks or, or times. And, and certainly God wants us to minister to them and reach out to those in need in our community. But what greater need does one have than to be lost and to need Jesus? And let me remind you, that's not your blood relative. But it's talking about your brother of humanity all across the world and the tribal groups of West Africa, those isolated, unreached people groups of Eastern Europe and Central Asia that have yet to hear the gospel. Do you see them? Are you willing to look beyond your own world and see your brother in need of the gospel? Well, the third question is implied then what do you give? 
How do you respond? What do you do about it? Or, as the scripture implies, do you close your heart against him? As, as, as some translations say, your heart of compassion against them. Being reminded of a lost nations and the peoples of the world at this global impact celebration. Hearing the missionaries tell about the needs, how God's at work around the world. Are you willing to open your eyes and see them? Are you willing to obey his command to love them? Then what do you do about it? How do you respond? I received uh, a letter a few years ago from someone I think in Texas who had a prayer ministry. And he wrote and said, Dr. Rankin, I pray for you and the International Mission Board. I pray for your missionaries systematically. And I've been reading about all the unreached people groups that are yet to be engaged with the gospel. The need for more missionaries. The need for churches to become more involved in partnering with you. He said, and I've been praying, Matthew 9, 38, where we're told to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into the harvest. And then he asked, why isn't God answering my prayer? Why isn't he calling out the missionaries, the laborers that are needed to reach a lost world as he promised to do if we would pray? Well, I didn't know how to respond. I'd been wondering the same thing myself. But after praying about it, meditating on it, I wrote him in and said, Sir, I believe God is answering your prayer. He is calling out the laborers. But the laborers are not responding. Because of a closed mind or a calloused heart or a reluctant will. Now let me ask. Why you've never considered the possibility that God could use you to touch a lost world? Is it because your mind has been closed? You've just assumed, well, I'm not qualified or he's never spoken to me in a burning bush or Damascus Road experience and never considered that God could use you. You know, those 61 missionaries we appointed earlier this month, there was one pastor among them. They were bank auditors, engineers, computer programmers. There was an attorney, a doctor, several businessmen, a teacher. What were we doing appointing them as missionaries? Well, some of them had gone on a mission trip and seen the needs of a lost world and they recognized the potential in their life of going and reaching them. They couldn't come back and just settle in to lining their pockets with investments and holding on to their own comfort and security when they could make a difference in reaching a lost world. And because of their business skills and credentials and professional experience, many of those are the very ones gaining access to restricted countries where traditional missionaries have never gone. Has your mind been closed to the possibility God could use you? Or is it because of a calloused heart? All you have to do is watch the newscast to see a world without Christ, 
a world in darkness and despair and sin, does it not occur to you that Jesus is the answer and you have that answer within your life and potential? Have we just allowed our hearts to be indifferent, hardened toward the needs of a world without Christ? Or could it be like I think most of us? It's a reluctant will. We're just unwilling to lay our lives on the altar and surrender. Unwilling to dare say, Lord, here is my life. I'm willing to follow wherever you lead. I'll go if if you open the door and, and clearly, distinctly guide me to participate in that mission trip or even offer my life. But it begins with laying your will on the altar in submission to the Lordship of Christ. What do you see? What do you have? What do you give? What do you do about it? They're all answered by the fourth question. How much do you love? For how can you say the love of God is in you? And close your heart to your brother, a world in need of Jesus.